Welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Society of San Francisco Sunday Morning Worship Service Podcast. For more information or downloads of previous audio services, go to uusf.org. While you're there, check out our monthly newsletter, Weekly Flame, and much, much more. The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.
Good morning, everybody. You know, the Bible has language about the holy remnant. You are my holy remnant. It's so good to see you all this morning. And welcome also to all our people on live stream, including folks who needed to take care of themselves and also keep us all a little healthier by staying home. So blessings and greeting to you too. Welcome this week that seminary does not prepare one for, but probably life hasn't prepared many of us for either. I wanted to just say that as the week and the days unfold, to just pay attention to emails that we'll try to get out, to Facebook, so that we can keep you updated on what will and will not be taking place here and how we will have opportunities to continue to connect through the weeks ahead. So we will do our best to communicate directly, um, but also just kind of reach in through some of those um, platforms that we have available to us. Remind folks, of course, to let us know if you're not doing well, and we'll see what we can do to reach out to um, help you get through whatever comes your way. Also, to be attentive to our Asian American neighbors, many of whom are experiencing um, prejudice that's unfounded, of course, because the virus knows no limits in what kinds of human beings it travels with or through. So let's be that expansive force of love and understanding and help others to kind of check themselves as well. Let me just ask if we have any visitors who are here today who want to identify yourselves, if you can raise your hand. We'll give you a big hug and kisses and... <laughs> <laughs> Great. Which brings me to my other point, which we will do things a little bit differently today. So when it's our time for greeting, um, you can give each other the recognition that the sacred in you greets the sacred in them. Um, please, let's uh, respect uh, physical boundaries, except I suppose if you want to revive the bump from your days in the 70s, you know the bump? Or any other creative opportunities. Yes, I think also Eric's, where are you, Eric Shackelford? Eric's got one he's going to share with us later, too. Um, we won't pass the offertory baskets, but we will have them in the back at the end of service if you want to put your um, offering or pledge in the, in the baskets there today. Um, and uh, there's a small group of us, so if you're a health professional, healthcare professional, maybe you can join us in the Stebbins room afterwards. We're going to be talking about how to be responsible here, and um, we'd love your input and wisdom. I think that concludes the welcome. So because I don't think hymnals actually would carry the flu, but we're just going to be super careful, and so we're not going to do any hymns that require touching the hymnals, but we are going to do simple gifts, and Mark is going to help line it out for us. He's going to touch a hymnal, but he's got his Purell. <laughs> we're modeling good behavior up here. In case the lyrics don't come to mind, we will help you with those. Uh, let's sing it through twice. It'll give us a chance to get it right. Here we go. Rick. <laughs> to be simple 
tis the gift to be free, tis the gift to come down where you ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the haste just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained to bow chalice lighting. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. Good morning, everybody. So, it is the canvas, and no one's sitting in the seats. Don't worry, we have a button on our website. You can still pledge from the safety of your own cubicle. <laughs> so, anyway, we are going to proceed with it. We're doing really well. Our pledges are coming in like crazy. Thank you so much for all your support. I'm going to be out at the table. Personally, very hygienically carved one little piece of pie for eight people who want to come to the table after service. Um, and I do really hope that you all stay well. I bet all of you have already pledged. And you at home, go ahead and push that button. We'll see you then. And now, as you're willing and able, please rise for our spoken covenant and sung doxology. 
Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its prayer. This is our great covenant to dwell together in peace and seek the truth and freedom and help one another. Recognizing there is human suffering all over this world in the course of natural and human catastrophes. We ring our gong today in honor of two such places of suffering and struggle. We ring our gong in honor of the seven children who lost their lives in federal custody in detention camps. And we let its ringing those seven times stand in symbolically for those adults who have lost their lives in those same camps who remain in them, for the many people separated from their families and those also who wait in makeshift refugee camps along our border, hoping for an asylum hearing. We ring our gong once additionally for people suffering from illness, from the COVID-19 virus, those who are sick or lost to us, but also all who will suffer isolation and fear because of its threat, those particularly at risk, but also for all those who suffer at the threat of all the illnesses that plague us, body, spirit, and mind. So let's keep all those we have named, their families and friends in our thoughts and prayers, and may we ease the tide of human suffering this coming week, howsoever we can.
I have a colleague who thinks that we human beings have lost the power and a love of prayers of confession, those humble and rich acknowledgments of the ways in which we have made mistakes and need in some way to name them, ask for support from within and beyond to make our peace with the damage done, but also to be moved to heal ourselves and our relationships. So this morning, I thought we would pray together words from Howard Thurman, whose church for the Fellowship of All Peoples was incubated here, whose memorial service was in this space. He uses the word God, which I invite you to translate as you need to, as a force for love and life, or as Forest Church would say, God, not God's name, but our name for that which is greater than all and yet present within each. So let's join together in a spirit of prayer and meditation. I lay before you The concern which I lay before you today is whatever disaffection there is between me and those who are or have been very close to me, I would seek the root or cause of such disaffection. And with the illumination of your mind, O God, to understand it. I give myself to your scrutiny that whatever there may be in me that is responsible for what is happening, I will acknowledge it. Where I have wronged or given offense deliberately or without intention, I seek face-to-face forgiveness. What I can undo, I am willing to try, and what I cannot undo, with that I seek to make my peace. How to do these things? What techniques to use with what spirit? For these I need and seek your wisdom and strength, O God. Whatever disaffection there is between me and those who are or have been very close to me, I lay before you. With those words, I invite us to hold a minute of shared silence together for the meditations of our own hearts and minds.
Amen. Friends, for your consideration, a runaway train, a minefield, a road less traveled. Imagine navigating a shifting landscape, fragmented between light and shadow, 
fissured between fiction and fact, fractured along fault lines between imagination and reality. There's a fork in the road up ahead, and on one side posts a sign saying, you are about to enter the two-white zone. The two-white zone is a bewildering dimension of perception fraught with fragility and a minefield of unconscious bias. We navigate a slippery slope between the summit of self-aware compassion and the pit of conditioned assumption. The two-white zone is a, a state of mind of thoughts and actions and words driven by unconscious and conscious bias, hurtful presumptions by white people about the behavior and characteristics of people who are not white, by outward appearances, all is well in the two-white zone, if you are white. Let us consider together what it could be like for someone who is not white to navigate the two white zone by observing a situation based on all two real events that we will call the unwelcome welcome. Good morning. I wonder if you could help me find a room. Hello, welcome. You must be here for the racial diversity workshop. Actually, I'm here for the book club. Oh, it must be a new Black Lives Matter book. Actually, it's John Buren's new book about the transcendentalists. Oh, right. I bought that book. Doesn't it refer to Crispus Attucks or maybe it's E.B.W. Dubois? No, no. You're new here, huh? I've been a member for five years, but I can't seem to get here very often. Freeze. Let's freeze things right here for a moment. A, a casual chance encounter punctuated by what might, might seem like cheerful chit-chat and seemingly harmless presumptions. But are the presumptions really harmless? Let's rewind. Let's replay the scene, this time listening carefully to what our protagonists say, as well as to their inner thoughts. Oh, who is this? Do I know her? I have such a hard time telling some people apart. Oh, I've seen this person here before. Maybe he can point me in the right direction. Good morning. I wonder if you could point me in the right direction. Can well, you help me find a room? Hello, welcome. You must be here for the racial diversity workshop. Whoa, I just walked in the door and already I'm being stereotyped. I'm not the one who needs the diversity workshop. Actually, I'm here for the book club. Book club? Must be some ethnic diversity thing I'm not aware of. It's that new Black Lives Matter book, isn't it? Why does this person think the only book I'd read would be racially themed? Actually, it's John Buren's new book about the Transcendentalists. Oh. Oh, yeah. I bought that book. Doesn't it 
It talks about Crispus addicts. No, no, it's, it's W.E.B. Du Bois, right? Why is he only naming black people? No. Oh, stupid, stupid, stupid. That was a stupid thing to say. Uh, say something else, quick. Uh, you must be new here. I've been a member for five years, but it's so hard to feel like I belong here. This is why I find it hard to come. I've, I've been a member here for five years, but I can't seem to get here very often. Freeze. Consider, if you will, the runway train of presumption, bursting through all warning signals, causing collateral damage all along the way. Damage that makes assumptions about who people are, what they're interested in, why they come, about their experience and history. Assumptions based on nothing, often, but the color of a person's skin. So much is whitewashed away, you might say, in the two-white zone. So let's rewind once more. Return to the fork that we encountered earlier and begin to imagine another way. What if we take the other fork in the road, the road less traveled, you might say, and walk instead the road of right relations. In this version of the scenario, let's hear a play-by-play -play analysis of the encounter as it unfolds once again through the inner thoughts of the protagonists and witness their attempts to live the covenant of right relations. getting there. I'm not late. I've just got my own sense of time. Good morning. I wonder if you can help me find a room? Oh, jeez. Looks like I'm having a brain freeze here. All right. I've seen her before. I, I can't remember her name. Oh, this could be tricky. Hello. Welcome. I'll try. Uh, which event are you looking for? Um, I'm here for the book club. All right. All right. I got this. I don't know about the book club, but I'll bet it's on our calendar. I'm walking that way. I'll help you find it. Uh, what book is the club reading? Actually, it's John Buren's new book about the Transcendentalists. Okay, I, I read that. Boy, I should have joined that book club. What do I remember about that book? Wait a minute. I've read that. Well, you should have joined the book club. That's what I was just thinking. <laughs> Let's see. Stebbins' room. That's where you're meeting. You know, do you know where that is? Yes. <laughs> Great. My name is Don, by the way. I hope you enjoy the book club, and maybe we can talk about it another time. Don, I'm Rochelle. So nice to meet you. And so, friends, here you have it. The alternative to the two-white zone is the road to right relations. And if someone asks you, how do I get there, tell them, stay off the well-worn tracks of lazy assumptions. Avoid the minefields of hurt with simple openness and presence, and choose the road less traveled, beginning to really, really see one another. And now our offering will just be enjoyed musically by all of you and taken as you leave today's service. You've 
got to be taught to hate and fear. You've got to be taught from year to year. It's got to be drummed in your dear little ear. You've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be taught to be afraid of people whose ears are gingerly made and people whose skin is a different shade. You've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be taught before it's too late, before you are six or seven or eight. To hate all the people your relatives hate, you've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be carefully taught. Our reading today is from Ibram Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Back in my third grade class, the unfair punishments and overlooking did not seem to bother the other black students, so I didn't let them bother me. But one day before Christmas break in 1990, it became unavoidable. A tiny and quiet girl, tinier and quieter than me, sat on the other side of the back of the room. The teacher asked a question, and I saw her slowly raise her dark-skinned hand, which was a rare occurrence. Her shyness, or something else, generally kept her mouth closed and her arm down. But something roused her today. I smiled as I saw her small hand rising for the teacher's attention. The teacher looked at her, looked away and instead called on a white hand as soon as it was raised. As the black girl's arm came down, I could see her head going down. As I saw her head going down, I could see her spirit going down. I turned and looked up at the teacher, who of course was not looking at me. She was too busy engaging a favored white child to notice what was happening in the back. Neither my fury nor the sadness of the girl registered for her. Scholars call what I saw a microaggression, a term coined by eminent Harvard psychiatrist Chester Pierce in 1970. Pierce employed the term to describe the constant verbal and nonverbal abuse racist white people unleash on black people wherever we go day after day. A white woman grabs her purse when a black person sits down next to her. The seat next to a black person stays empty on the crowded bus. A white woman calls the cops at the sight of black people barbecuing in the park. White people telling us that our firmness is anger or that our practiced talents are natural. Mistaking us for the only other black person around, calling the cops on our children for selling lemonade on the street, assuming we are the help 
assuming the help isn't brilliant, asking us questions about the entire black race, not giving us the benefit of the doubt. As an African-American, Pierce suffered from, suffered from and witnessed this sort of everyday abuse. He identified these individual abuses as microaggressions to distinguish from the macroaggressions of racist violence and policies. you do together, do together, do together, that make perfect relationships. The hobbies you pursue together, savings you accrue together, looks you misconstrue together, that make marriage a joy. It's the little things you share together, swear together, wear together, that make Perfect relationships that constitute you and joy together, neighbors you annoy together, and children you destroy together, that make marriage intact. Sorry. It's not so hard to be married when two maneuver as one. It's not so hard to be married. And Jesus Christ, is it fun? It's sharing little weeks together. Drinks together, kinks together, that make marriage a joy. It's the bugs that you shop together, cigarettes you stop together, clothing that you swap together, that make perfect relationships. It's not talk of God and the decade ahead that allows you to get through the worst. It's I do and you don't and nobody said that And who brought the subject to first? It's the little things The little things, the little things The little ways you try together Try together, lie together That make perfect relationships Becoming a cliche together Growing old and gray together Withering away together That makes marriage a joy It's not so hard to be married It's much the simplest of crimes It's not so hard to be married I've done it numbers of times It's people that you hate together Beat together Date together that make marriage a joy. It's things like using force together, shouting till you're hoarse together, getting a divorce together. That make perfect relationships. Ah, kiss, kiss. Mm. You in
get that in my grandma's Baptist church, I'm just saying. <laughs> well, we didn't have the Broadway sing-along last night, but we did get a little bit of Broadway this morning. A little bit of South Pacific that probably, as a musical now, can't even be done because it has one of the most racist portrayals of an Asian character, but also has that song of incredible staying power, reminding us that we have to be carefully taught our prejudice. And Sondheim, with the song from the 1970 musical Company, reminding us of how wonderful we can be together and how badly behaved we can be together. How what binds us in marriage, in society, in our little tribes can be habits that are beautiful and awful. <laughs> and this morning we're talking a little bit about the so-called little hurts, microaggressions that layer one on top of the other until those who are on the receiving end of them are covered in emotional scar tissue and plagued by literal trauma that decreases health outcomes and can contribute to things like teenage suicide. Professor Chester Pierce, whose time in this world was racked with macroaggressions of whites against blacks, as you heard, was the first to coin this term microaggression to name the less obvious, perhaps, but no less stinging hurts we did to one another. These so-called microaggressions, a term that Ibram Kendi actually rejects in favor of more explicit and accurate terms that describe what happens. He likes to call the ones that whites perpetrate against blacks racial aggression. These so-called microaggressions are maybe in some cases more stinging because they can go so easily without being named, right? Or they can be denied and Perhaps those suffering them then get gaslighted in ways that actually add one more injury to one's identity and sense of worth. Dr. Pierce's term was broadened by psychologist Daryl Wing Sue to be applied more broadly than just acts of aggression that whites committed against black people. And the ones, for instance, like what we saw in the skit this morning, the term got broadened to include all the ways in which these same kind of diminishments were delivered to groups of people of any and all marginalized identities. For a girl, you're pretty good in physics. Come, welcome, come to church in your wheelchair. Just keep knocking at that side door and eventually someone will see and let you in. That's a funny accent, where are you from? I hope you have all your papers and you're safe. So who is the woman in your relationship and who's the man, as someone once asked a lesbian colleague of mine. You know, I am fine with you being fill in the marginalized identity, but don't talk about it too much because other people might not be so welcoming. 
There are so many ways we manage to harm one another. And if I had to draw a thread that sews them all and connects them all together, I think it would be all the ways in which we say to another person, someone of marginalized identity, that they are other. And that they are seen only in part, only mostly for that part that makes them different than us, the one most obvious to us. And let's be honest that so often focusing on this piece of the marginalized part of someone's identity, it often comes laden with all the prejudices and biases around and against that piece of a person's identity. So it's this toxic combination that the person we seemingly sometimes are trying to connect with is not only not seen for the vast majority of who they are, but the part that is seen is abused. And when that experience is daily or even multiple times a day for a lifetime, it takes its toll. Let's bring it home a little. Imagine, oh, it's the old guy. Hey, the old guy is here. I mean, it's welcoming, right? Hey, you're pretty spry for an old guy. Hey, Tigger, Tigger's still working, huh? Not dead yet. <laughs> Imagine, all day, every day, for your whole life, if that were possible, you're not John the accountant or the mountain climber or the person who's such a good friend and a great son or that fabulous chef of that incredible chicken curry. No, you're the old guy, marginalized, doddering, emasculated mascot of humanity. And fill it in for whatever your own possible marginalized piece is or are, if you need to fill it in, if it's not already been made obvious to you by the world. Maybe you're the only woman in the boardroom, but always pointed out that you're the woman in the boardroom, or you're the guy, the gay guy on the basketball team. And no one lets you forget that one piece. Or you're not the poet, the exquisite poet, but you're the Mexican poet at the poetry group who's always asked about the Latin American poets, though actually what you love are the English romantics, but no one ever seems to ask you about those. And what gets obliterated and what gets reinforced in a thousand so-called micro-moments is all of this, this aggressive aggressing. And the volume over time is enough to break another's back or spirit, and it's astounding how often it doesn't. It speaks to amazing resilience, but not one we should keep testing in one another. Because the unfair part of all of this, of course, is that those who commit the microaggressions, the harms, are often oblivious, right? When we do it, we're often oblivious. The aggressor administers the cut and then walks away, scot-free. So what would it mean then to try and figure out the ways that we can share the burden 
of those exchanges? What if the first goal of being in all of this together as we are were to understand that a successful first step is just that we know we're sharing the pain because we experience it. So this month, I'm offering another chance, like we did last year, for folks, especially white folks, who want to read Robin D'Angelo's book, White Fragility, to do so and to come and read it. And I think it's a great book. How many folks here have already read it? Oh, that's great. Good. It's not an easy read. I think, Eric Shackelford, you were taking a class in death and dying somewhere else and uh, sometimes would take a break from Rob and D'Angelo's tougher chapters to read about death and dying. <laughs> it is tough because she points out a lot of things that are painful to see and understand. And I think talking about it together makes it a lot richer to process. So I invite everyone to come, but one of the things that Robin D'Angelo talks about in the book, one of her anchor concepts is, of course, what she calls white fragility, the title of the book. It's this idea that when confronted by racist, hurtful acts, white folks often get defensive. They decide that the person who's pointed out what was done wrong didn't choose the right words or the right time to do it, didn't assume the best about them, or wasn't kind in how they said it or doesn't know them, and so how dare they? Or a thousand reasons why the person who shared the truth of their experience, the harm that they experienced, was really the one who was in the wrong. You can only imagine what Ibram Kendi's teacher would have said if he, as a boy, had pointed out that she didn't call on the black kids, that he was rude, that so-and-so actually had their hand up first, that she didn't appreciate being called a racist, not by him. And the boy would have been made wrong, though he was right. She, like so many teachers, had fallen into, as so many still do, this implicit bias that influences who they favor and who they encourage and who they assume will do well in class. I read a study not so long ago that had teachers being told that certain students were the smartest in the class, randomly assigned. An implicit bias so influenced how the teachers treated the students, how the students internalized that treatment, and how the students performed, that on average, those that had been randomly assigned as the smart kids did better. It matters. And so hearing the critiques that others offer us of where we've wounded or made assumptions matters too. And that means that learning these eye-opening, scales dropping from our eyes moments, these moments of transformation that we say we're open to and want in our lives, and I think in the end are grateful for that it requires tough skin, that it requires dropping white fragility, paying attention to male fragility or ableist fragility or heterosexist fragility or class fragility or any fragility when it rises up in us. It means that 
What we do is to know when our back gets up, if someone names something that we've done wrong, even unintentionally, and that right behind the defensive, fragile response, which is human and understandable, we say the mantra, it doesn't matter how it gets said, or it doesn't matter when, it matters that it gets said, so I can learn and grow and be part of the healing. And then we say out loud, that was hard to hear, but I'm so glad you told me because it must have been even harder for you to experience. And so thank you for risking telling me. And I'm sorry, and I will try not to do this again. Are those awful moments? For me, yes. I hate them when they happen, almost always. I hate when I hurt somebody. I hate feeling like a bad person. I hate feeling ignorant. I hate feeling wrong. I hate feeling like I participate in something that I know is so painful, but I still can't see it. But I'm also glad to know, right? Because otherwise, I'd spend a lifetime like some racist, oblivious, even, even blithely typhoid Mary, <laughs> spreading evil and disease in my wake of a kind, right? Because that's what we'll do if we're not told. And if we feel, any of us, feel the pain at any moment when something is pointed out of this kind that was hurtful, well, maybe we can take enormous consolation in the fact that the person we hurt for once is feeling a little less pain in the aftermath. Because unlike that girl in the classroom with her head down and the boy whose critique who would have been gaslighted, we hopefully have made the person feel heard and honored. We hopefully have made it clear that there is a real apology for the hurt they experienced, and maybe there will be healing. And what's more, that healing in the larger sense is possible if we never repeat those wrongs again. So how hopeful is that? Or maybe we'll catch ourselves before we do it, or maybe we'll intervene when we see someone else doing it so that the person whose marginalized identity is being brought into the fore and wounding them once again, the way it's been used as a weapon, maybe they won't have to do all the hard work for once and will stem the tide. Well, here I just want to make one last point, and that is that no one is immune from doing this kind of wrong. Even if you've suffered pains like this yourself, even if you yourself have one or more marginalized identities, Indeed, D'Angelo points out the danger of any of us feeling enamored of the idea of ourselves as the good person. Instead, we have to know that there's no life, experience, or identity, or anything about any of us that makes us immune to ever having to consider being carefully taught a new way of being. In fact, woke folks 
often get casual with our own self-reflection, just as casual as people in privileged bubbles do. And sometimes those two overlap. I have had to defend, I've had people defend themselves against hearing their own mistake in microaggressions with defenses like they are a therapist, so they know about all these things, <laughs> which was not a, something that was enough to protect them, or saying they worked all their lives with folks with marginalized identities, which didn't actually protect them from the mistake they made, or they marched in Selma, which didn't make them immune, or they are part of a mixed-race family where they themselves have a marginalized identity. But there is no magic bullet or inoculation to guarantee that we will never be on the receiving end of these conversations and no guarantee that we won't have earned our place there. So defenses down. For all of us, the key to remember is that we can hurt and sometimes all too often we won't know unless the person we have hurt is courageous enough, takes the risk enough, is generous enough in their life energies to tell us. And then it's our job to thank them and change and reflect. Because people are getting hurt. A thousand cuts bearing burdens of hurt in silence, leaving the aggressors to go on making the same mistakes like so many oblivious loose cannons on the streets. And one way we can work to stop perpetuating all this othering of people and oppression is to open our hearts first here and then wherever we go to invite conversations of this kind and do so because it's our spiritual commitment. It is a piece of our spiritual commitment and what the discipline of love and healing asks of us. Just this. So siblings in faith, we are all carefully taught a lot that needs to be unlearned. May we help one another to see what needs to be seen to share in the pain of microaggressions, not so micro at all, and begin the healing in this land beyond the two white zone and all the other places like it. Bless us all in the work of answering the call to love. Emboldened by 
remain standing, connects our, connect our spirits, or you can do elbows, or whatever feels important. Thanks, by the way, to Jonathan on the drums, and to Mari and Michael and Rochelle and Don for the skit today, and everybody, everybody for coming out to be together. And now in our comings and our goings, may the light of love shine upon us out from within us, be gracious unto us, and grant us peace. For this is the day we are given. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen.
podcast of the First Unitarian Universalist Society of San Francisco Sunday Morning Worship Service. For more information or downloads of previous audio services, go to uusf.org.